Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 120 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Anne Leckie, author of Ancillary Justice, one of last year's most popular books. It won numerous awards, including the Hugo, the Nebula, the Arthur C. Clarke Award, and the British Science Fiction Association Award. A sequel, Ancillary Sword, is out now. So, Anne, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. All right, so to start out with, how did you first get interested in reading fantasy and science fiction? I honestly do not know the answer to that question. I've been reading fantasy and science fiction since I was pretty little. Uh, so it's one of those things that's kind of always been there, So, and I'm not sure how I got interested in it. I heard you say, though, that your parents were not big science fiction fans. They were not. They were big uh, mystery novel fans, uh, but they were not into science fiction. They felt like science fiction was just about gadgets and stuff and couldn't really be real literature, and they really kind of hoped I would grow out of it. (laughs) Uh, But somehow, so it wasn't around the house, I assume, right? But you somehow you found it in, in a library or a school or something? Probably in the library. Uh, I spent, I lived walking distance from the local library branch when I was a kid and would go down there almost every Saturday and just hang. So that's probably where, where I found it. And what were some of the authors that you were reading at that time? Um, at that time, well, I read almost everything that was on the shelf there, but, uh, that was when I discovered, uh, Andre Norton. Um, big favorite of mine, uh, for a very long time. Uh, Oh, I read a bunch of John Christopher, I remember. Uh, I'm trying to think what else they had. There were just tons of things. Uh, and a, in a lot of cases, I wouldn't remember who it was. But Andre Norton was a definite, definite big one. Now, were you, did you, were you writing any science fiction as a kid? Or sort of when did that, when did you start actually writing your own science fiction? Um, that's an interest. I did write stuff as a kid. Uh, and I'm trying to think, I think most of it I've sort of repressed. <laughs> uh, there was some, some fantasy and science fiction, but also, you know, parodies, you know, the kind of stuff that you write when you're a kid, uh, stuff to amuse my friends at school, uh, particularly in high school. Uh, and so I'm not 100% sure, to be honest, but I was writing stuff and I did think it would be cool to be a writer. And interestingly, although my parents did not approve of my reading choices, they firmly believed that I was going to be a writer. And really encouraged me to do that. I mean, so what kind of encouragement did they give you? I mean, I know you went to the Clarion Writers Workshop. How did you go sort of from reading stuff as a kid or as a teenager to attending Clarion? Um, Well, that was a long process because actually I was at Clarion West, uh, what, in 2005. So that was pretty recent. Um, Really what kind of happened was... uh, As a kid, and particularly in high school and college, I thought, gee, wouldn't it be cool to write? But I don't have any really good ideas, right? I'd sit down and write something, and it would just seem stupid. Uh, And I didn't realize at the time, and I think this is one of the big blessings of the internet, uh, I didn't realize at the time that a lot of people feel that way. Even some of my favorite writers feel that way when they sit down to write something. And at the time, I felt like it was that was a sign that really I wasn't as talented as, as say, my parents kept telling me they thought I was. Uh, and I said, well, no, obviously, I can't do this, because if I could do this, I could just sit down and do it. Um, and so that persisted for a long time. And then uh, when I had my kids, uh, I was at home. I had discovered very quickly that if I went back to work, I would be spending money to work, which is sort of defeating the purpose of doing it when it's a job that you don't really love. And so I stayed home. And 
my kids are wonderful. Uh, I think any parent will tell you that their kids are wonderful and it's really marvelous to be able to spend a lot of time with them when they're little, but it's not very intellectually stimulating. <laughs> Uh, and after a while, I started to feel like my brains were leaking out my ears. Um, and that was when I said, well, you know, I have to do something. Uh, and I, we finally got internet connection and I started reading up on you know, just stuff. Uh, and I said, well, no, wait a minute. Actually, all these other writers feel that way when they sit down to do it. And so maybe that's not a sign that I can't be a writer. Maybe I can't, but that's not a sign that I can't. Um, and, Maybe that'd be something to do, something to think about, uh, that would, you know, be helpful to me psychologically. And so that was when I really seriously sat down and said, no, I'm going to do this even if I think it's, even if I feel like it's stupid. Uh, and that was, uh, uh, NaNoWriMo was a really big help there too, because, uh, I love NaNoWriMo. One of the things I learned was even with that little voice in the back of my mind telling me that my ideas just weren't worth it and nobody would want to read them, I could still, I could still write through that. I could continue. And then when the month was done, I had a manuscript. Uh, that was a really important, uh, kind of step in my beginning to feel confident as a writer. And it wasn't long after that that some friends in a crit group, uh, said, you know, you really ought to apply to Clarion or Clarion West. And I thought about it and I worked it all out and said, no, I can make it work. And I did apply and I went. So, uh, so that was, that was really pretty cool. So, and that was that NaNoWriMo novel, Ancillary Justice? It was not. Um, I already had the basic plot for Ancillary Justice, but I was afraid to write it, uh, because I knew that it wanted to be first person from that character's perspective, but the idea of writing that, I couldn't even figure out how to begin to write that character. I mean, how, how do you write from the first person perspective of somebody with thousands of bodies? Hmm. I, I was like, I can't do that. And so actually that first nano novel is sort of over to the side of Ancillary Justice. Uh, it, it's in the same continuity though, or? It is in the same continuity, yeah. In fact, it deals with uh, events that are mentioned in Ancillary Justice are actually dealt with specifically in that first nano novel. And I know that you that you wrote a bunch of short stories before your first novel came out. Sort of where in the chronology were you doing the short stories? Um, so I it was in two thousand two that I did my first NaNoWriMo, and then I did another year of NaNoWriMo, and then uh, when I looked at those two manuscripts. I said, you know, maybe I need to start writing some short stories, partly because that's the advice that they often give you, which is, you know, you want to sell a novel, you should sell some short stories first. I want to say that is not necessarily true. And if you really don't like short stories, there's really no reason to spend a lot of time trying to write them because you'll just make yourself unhappy uh, and you won't necessarily make any readers happy. Hmm. So I, I just want to put that out there. But at the time I thought, well, maybe I should do that. Also, it takes a very long time to write a novel and then it can be on submission for ages. Um, a short story, it takes much less time. The turnaround's faster. You get rejected a lot faster. Uh, and so I said, well, I'll, I'll spend some time on short stories. And I had only written a few short stories when I went to Clarion West, uh, enough to apply. And, uh, of course I spent that time writing short stories. And so then I spent a fair amount of time after that really work, putting a lot of work into writing short stories, uh, which I enjoyed a lot, actually. Actually, there's a lot of really, there's some really neat stuff you can do at that scale. It's a very different, it's a very different form, which is part of why I don't think it's necessarily helpful to tell aspiring novelists that they should learn to write short stories if they want to learn to write novels, because that's not really what they're going to learn. Although you can learn some really cool stuff that way, I think. Yeah, well, 
Tell, tell us a bit more about Clarion. It says in your Wikipedia page that you studied with Octavia Butler. Could you tell us a little bit about what sort of interactions you had with her while you were there? So, yeah, she was our week one teacher. Um, and Octavia Butler, she was awesome, of course. She was also uh, very, very introverted. Um, and so we would interact in class. And, of course, we got uh, one of the cool things about Clarion, I think probably of uh, Clarion San Diego as well, is you get that one-on-one -on -one session with the instructor that week. And so uh, it was really awesome to be able to talk to her personally. Of course, she'd only seen my submission story. Uh, she'd chosen my submission story for the first week so that I didn't have to write a story that first week. So she was only really looking at that work. Um, and she looked at that story uh, in our one-on-one -on -one and she said, so you're not really under the impression that this is a short story, are you? <laughs> and I said, no. She says, because you're really like a novelist, right? And I was like, yeah, I kind of am. <laughs> um, so, so that was really, that was really cool. That was pretty amazing. It was really amazing to be able to meet her and hear her talk about fiction. It was just, it was really fabulous. Okay. And so then you, you had a bunch of short stories you had written then. And then what was your uh, process for selling some of those to, to get your first fiction publications? So, uh, the first, the first science fiction publication was actually, I actually wrote it at Clarion West. Just before, I think, I went to Clarion West, John Scalzi had said on his blog that he was going to be guest editing an issue of Subterranean Magazine. Um, and that the theme was going to be science fiction cliches. And hmm. I said, well, that would be really cool. And went into Clarion West and actually, uh, told some of my classmates about it too. Um, and, ended up turning in a first draft of a story for week six with Michael Swanwick, in fact, um, that I actually ended up then revising and selling to John Scalzi for that issue. And that was my first sale. And what was the, sorry, what was the cliche? Oh, well, um, the cliche was, it's hard to put in a nutshell. Um, it was kind of an Edgar Rice Burroughs pastiche. It was called Hesperia and Glory, and it was uh, very much a sort of a Martian prince kind of a thing. Very much like uh, the Edgar Rice Burroughs Mars things. Um, okay, and so you said that you're really kind of a, a novelist by nature. Could you say a bit more about sort of why is, why is the, the novel naturally, the form you naturally fall into? Um, one of the things that I really enjoy about, and I think a lot of readers and writers enjoy this about science fiction and fantasy, is um, the way that you can really delve into the setting and to, uh, say, the uh, the anthropology or the history or the geography or whatever, and you can pull in a lot of really cool things and put them down on the page and go, wow, isn't this cool? Uh, but a short story doesn't really give you a lot of room for that. In a short story, absolutely everything has to be doing like five things. Um, otherwise you have to cut it. And the things that in a novel there's room to say, to add a sentence to say this really cool thing that adds a really cool effect, uh, that's really worth doing, um, there's just no space for in a short story. You have to be much, much more efficient. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that I really, really, really enjoy about writing. Um, I can do the short stories, obviously. Uh, and they are fun to do, but 
I found when I went back to doing the novels that it was almost a physical relief that I could kind of stretch out and not have to slice off things that I really thought were important. Because when I would do a short story, I would write and it would be really, really long. And then I would have to just keep cutting things off. And I kind of felt every now and then like, you know, Cinderella's stepsisters cutting their toes off to fit their feet <laughs> in the shoe. You know, I kind of felt like that sometimes. And uh so, so yeah, I'm I'm a lot more comfortable when I have a lot of elbow room to work in. Yeah, well, I can definitely see that with Ancillary Justice, because the world you present in this novel is just so full of different ideas and all these kind of different things all stuffed together. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the world of that novel? Uh, tell us a little bit about, say, the Ratch Empire. So um, the the Ratch Empire, essentially, its origin is actually a Dyson sphere. Uh, but in fact, I think that the... the Empire that's grown up around it has, I think, almost no contact with its original place of origin. But it's just this huge, expansive empire that's always moving outward um, and sort of appropriating any systems that it comes across that have resources. Uh, and I guess they think of themselves as being, as representing civilization and humanity uh, and they think of people who maybe don't match their definition of humanity as being, you know, not, not entirely human and not, you know, worth paying much attention to. Uh, but they really see themselves as being a force for good and for civilization. And they're, they're bringing light to the world, uh, which, you know, the people who get annexed would argue with. Um, so that's, that's sort of the basic setup of it. Um, and of course, uh, they use the warships that, essentially take prisoners from these annexations and sort of slave them to the ships, to the ship's AIs, and use those as soldiers, as cannon fodder, as servants, as, you know, to work for the armies. Um, so that's, yeah, that's basically what the setup is. Yeah, I mean, so just uh, historically, what were some of the inspirations for the Ratch Empire? Like, what bits and pieces did you take from different real-life events? So, mostly, um, it's mostly bits and pieces, and it isn't necessarily inspired in particular by any particular set of historic events or uh, historic empires. Although, once I got started, um, I went looking for real-life empires. Uh, and so the most prominent example in Western history would be Rome. Uh, and, of course, a lot of science fiction writers have used the Roman Empire uh more or less simplistically, sometimes more complicatedly. Uh, and so Rome, in a lot of ways, was a big influence. But I drew from a lot of different uh, different historical periods and different areas, uh, generally anything that kind of interested me. So I would be fascinated for a while with uh, the ancient Near East, and I would grab things from there. Or I would be fascinated with Egypt, and I would grab stuff from there. Um, but a number of people have remarked, and I've said it before in the past too, Rome it has been a pretty big influence. Well, uh, how about the the centrality of tea to the Ratch Empire? Where did that idea come from? Um, so initially, it came from the fact that I am a huge, huge fan of C.J. Cherry's Foreigner books. Um, tea, although I don't think it can really be uh, the same kind of thing we call tea. Tea is really important to the Atevi in the Foreigner books, and I had been I had just come off a 
time when I was reading and rereading the first several books of those, uh, when I started into the novel, into the first NaNoWriMo novel. And also, I like tea. And so <laughs> I said, well, that's a win, right? It, uh, that's a cool thing about these novels that I can use. And it's a thing that I like. And I'll plug it in there and see what happens. And I plugged it in there and it just sort of became really important. Uh, and I was like, well, okay, I'll run with that. Well, it's interesting you mentioned C.J. Cherry because uh, this book has a blurb from Elizabeth Baer who says that this book establishes Lucky as an heir to Banks and Cherry. Um, mm -hmm. This reminds me a lot of uh, Ian M. Banks and also of Lois McMaster Bujold. Would you say that those were uh, influences on you? Uh, you know, I I hear the Banks thing a lot, and I guess I can kind of see where people are coming from. I had read Consider Phlebas at some point, quite some time ago. Um but other than that, I had not read a lot of Banks. Uh, after Ancillary Justice came out, then I read The Hydrogen Sonata. Uh, and that is all the Banks that I've read. So he wasn't really a big influence on my work. But I can see where folks are coming from uh, with the with the sentient ship angle. Um, although I think his project was a little bit different. Uh, Bujold is somebody who I've... Uh, I think I've read all of the Miles Forkosikan books. Um, and so she may have been an influence, but if so, it wasn't. It wasn't a conscious one, but I was definitely much more familiar with her work than with Banks. Actually, I mean, speaking of the sentient ships, I mean, the when I think of sentient ships in science fiction, the first example that comes to mind for me is The Ship Who Sang by Anne McCaffrey. And yeah. I don't know if that was an influence on you, but I, I thought it was interesting because you have a, a female sentient ship, or at least I, I took it as female sentient ship in um, Ancillary Justice, who likes to sing. And so I don't know if there's any connection there, but it kind of made me think of that, The Ship Who Sang and... Bricks. Yeah. I have actually never read The Ship Who Sang. Um, I ordered a copy recently. I found a used copy uh, because I was like, maybe I should read it at this point. <laughs> um, but of course, it's famous enough that uh, it's very probable to me that when I, it occurred to me that uh, one of the reasons uh, that Justice of Torn sings is because I was thinking about that character and I was thinking, well, if I had that many bodies, what would I do? And almost the first thing that came to my mind was, holy cow, I could sing choral music all by myself. And that would be completely awesome. Um, and once having had that idea, the, even just the title of The Ship Who Sang is so famous that, uh, you know, it's hard to escape that being there in the background. Um, but it wasn't something that I had ever read. At one of these days, I'll read it. Um, I thought it was in an interview, I said that you, you said, um, uh, that you said that music is often handled badly in fiction, so you were uh, you 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 sort of resisted putting that in for a while. Could you talk about uh, what why you think uh, music is handled badly in fiction off a lot of the time? So there are at least two main reasons. Um, one of them is that um, it can be fetishized in a way that that I don't really enjoy. Partly, I think a lot of times. Our culture has an attitude towards art and the production of art that sort of separates artists from the rest of us. Uh, like, like making art, music or painting or whatever is some magical thing that you have to be inspired to do and special people do it. And so when sometimes when somebody will write a character who's musical, there'll be kind of touches of that. There'll be that sort of almost Mary Sue-ish, you know, they play and sing beautifully and all the animals stop and listen. And it's <laughs> all, you know, uh, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but that kind of uh, fetishization of music and musical talent and singing, I, 
I'm not comfortable with myself. Uh, this is probably not necessarily because there's a problem with that, but because my, I feel very strongly that, uh, art and music in particular is something that really everybody has some kind of ability to do. And that when you separate that out as only special people can do it who are specially talented, um, you cut off that avenue of artistic expression for tons of people who would be able to enjoy it otherwise, but who think of it as something they can't do. And I feel kind of strongly about that. Um, the other way that I find that music is often handled badly in fiction is when the writer is thinking of the music as a soundtrack <laughs> and wants it there. And so they'll put in the lyrics to the song, for instance, expecting it to have the same effect as a soundtrack to the music, except it doesn't work that way. When you're reading the lyrics flat on the page, it doesn't evoke the music in the same way that, that the music actually does. Um, so those things, um, or, or even worse, in my opinion, this is very difficult to do when there are made up songs and see, I, I even stepped into this when they're made up songs and they want to evoke a particular mood or a particular, uh, emotional response with the made up songs. But of course it can't because it's not an existing song and it doesn't have that, uh, you know, the writer may feel it for what they're writing down, but the reader doesn't have the context that lets them do that. So those are ways that I find uh, the, the most common ways that, that I personally find music to be not particularly well handled when it's used in fiction. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's talk a little bit a little bit more about Breck, the character. You mentioned that she's kind of this starship um where all the the starship and all the crew are kind of networked together, so it's sort of this group mind. And you said that you were hesitant to do the book at first because that seemed like a really ambitious project. Um how did you sort of work through that uh, that that reluctance and <laughs> and actually write the book and what what sort of approaches did you take to that? Well, so um essentially I came back from Clarion West which that's come up several times at this point, that was actually very pivotal six weeks for me. Um, one of the things about being at something like Clarion West uh, is you spend all this time with people who take you really seriously. Uh, they don't know you as the lunch lady or the person down the street who's just a regular person who couldn't possibly actually be a writer or whatever. As far they're there meeting other writers and they take your work really seriously. And it's, it's much easier coming away from that to say, all right, I am a writer. I actually, I can do this. I've just spent all this time with all this support and all these people really taking very seriously and talking to me as though, of course I'm a writer. Um, and so I came away from that a lot more confident about not necessarily about my abilities, but about my being able to, to try to be a writer. I, that's an odd way of putting it, but, um, and so when November came around that year, which would have been the next NaNoWriMo, I said, well, maybe what I need to do is just stop doubting myself and hold my nose and jump. Just start writing. Um, and so I did, and it was, it was horrendous. I made all kinds of horrible structural things, but I said, I'm just going to write and write and come up with something. Um, and what I, after having thought about it for a while, well, how do I do this? This is really complicated. I could come up with a lot of complicated ways to do it. And I said, no, the way to do it, since this is the only way I can see that I can do it, is to actually do it very simply and just uh make sure that I ground the setting uh really firmly so that every time there's a switch to a different body, I'm very specific about 
in this place, this is happening. And in this place, this is happening and making sure that the, that the information is just very clear and always there right up front. And then just kind of try and pace it so that it's working. And which is a thing, you know, you kind of do by feel. And uh, so that was what I did. Although that was a lot of work that took a lot of trial and error and a lot of backing up and a lot of banging my head on the desk and, you know, that kind of thing. But in the end, I decided to take a very straightforward approach to it. I mean, one of the things I really liked about Breck as a character is how she's she's not human. And so she has to really try hard to pretend to be human and smile when she thinks people when people at work would be expecting her to smile and so on. And doing this podcast, a lot of people complain that my voice is too monotone or I'm not uh, enthusiastic enough. So I really identified with Breck in that sense because, <laughs> you know, I sort of have to try to pretend to be more animated uh, for this podcast. But I don't know. Is that something that you yourself have experienced um, that sort of like, no, people want you to be more animated or are you just using your imagination to picture what this robotic kind of character would be like? Oh, I've ac- I absolutely experienced that. You bet. Um, one of the like a lot of writers, I'm a serious introvert. And talking to strangers, you know, going out into a a place, the grocery store or whatever, and talking to somebody I don't know, really very difficult. Um, But one of my first jobs, uh, actually, my very first job was as a bus girl. But in college, I got a job as a waitress. And in a lot of ways, it was not a fun job. Uh, But in a lot of ways, it was really very beneficial because where I wasn't sure how to, I didn't know how those interactions were supposed to go with people who I didn't know well. But working for several years as a waitress, uh, you learn really quickly a couple of default scripts, right? So you know exactly what the interaction is going to be when the person sits down at the table. And then after a few months of that, I'm like, oh, I can switch it up a little bit. I can say, hey, it's pretty rainy outside and get a particular response uh, and know how to respond to that. So uh, that was a big, a big learning thing for me when I was in high school and college. Um, and that's something that I found really very useful. But what it means is that I'm not a person who those kind of interactions come naturally to me. And so when I'm thinking about Breck, I'm thinking about my own experience of here I am talking to a person. Now I need to pick a script. How is this going to go? You know, that's really interesting. Maybe I should get a job as a waiter. It might help me with my podcast. <laughs> I found it really beneficial, but really it's not. I mean, there's some cool things about uh, waiting tables. You you uh, meet a lot of really kind of interesting people. And most people who come into a place and eat are really kind of cool and fine. And there are one or two who just make you despair for humanity. <laughs> and then there are a few who are, it's just a joy. And uh, it it is really neat to be exposed to all those people. And it's really neat to be able to have them have a nice time and you help them have a nice time. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there's a reason that I haven't gone out and gotten another table waiting job, even though my kids are back in school. Well, that, that's interesting because I saw in your bio that you it said you worked as a waitress. And there's such a focus in, in both these books, it seems to me, on sort of um, social status and how do I – is this person above me or below me in the social status? And what do I have to say to them to be polite and stuff like that? And I was just wondering if if um if that kind of stuff came out of your experiences doing jobs like waitressing. It may well have. You know, there's nothing for showing you 
uh, what people think their status is, like being in a position like being a waitress or being a bus girl or, you know, um, after I had been waiting tables for the first few years, I came and I discovered that this is not original to me. Other people have had this thought, but, uh, I came to the conclusion that you could tell a lot about a person by how they treated someone they thought had no power over them. Uh, and very frequently that someone is a waiter or a, a dishwasher or, you know, a garbage collector or, you know, um, and it's really interesting. I worked actually in uh, the faculty club uh, of the university where I went to school. And so it was extraordinarily interesting to see the way that members, some of whom were professors, some of whom were big donors at the university, to see the way they would treat the other people who they would come into lunch with or the other people they would encounter at in the building versus the way they would speak to the waiters. Um, it was really, really interesting to me. I don't know. I don't think it consciously played into the books, but at the same time, I can't imagine that that experience wasn't there in the background. Well, yeah. And in speaking of, you know, how people speak, uh, one thing I thought that these books do really, really well is that it constantly reminds you that these characters are speaking a language other than English. And it's constantly saying she used a word that could mean this or that, or, you know, in this particular language, this word meant that. And also, you never say that the character, I don't think you ever say the character nodded or shrugged or something like that. It's always she made a gesture indicating confusion or a gesture indicating something. Just I hope I didn't. <laughs> I tried very hard. I tried very hard to stay away from shrugging and nodding. Mm -hmm. For exactly that reason. Yeah, but it just it just really communicate. It really it's really well thought through the the you know alien um, nature of the society and the manners and things. Yeah, that was that's something that um, I think a lot of science fiction tries really hard. Uh, this is one of the things I love about science fiction uh, to convey a sort of an alien, different future society. Um, but I in at least in the past several years, I've become really interested in the things that writers, including myself, don't notice uh, because they assume that it's default. So the shrugging and the nodding is one of those things. Uh, I, I think in my very first draft, people are shrugging and nodding left and right. <laughs> uh, and I realized at one point, I'm like, these gestures are very culture specific. And if you're making a, a completely alien society, there's no reason they're going to shrug. There's no reason that a nod is going to mean what it means to us. They're going to have a completely different vocabulary of of sort of bodily movement that's going to communicate the same way ours does, but it's not going to be shrugs and nods. And uh and so that was kind of a that was sort of a revelatory thought for me. It had not occurred to me, but it's really made me notice the places where it's more easily noticeable in older science fiction where, you know, we've got this uh, future society and the technology is all very different, but people are smoking cigarettes and using slide rules, <laughs> you know, um, and and the social relationships are exactly like they would have been in the 50s. You know, the wife is bringing in coffee and and it's like, wow, it, it those are blind spots, right? Because the writer saw those things as being constant. Why would those change? Because those are completely human nature, smoking a cigarette and having your wife bring you coffee. It, it's really, I don't mean that to be critical uh, in, a, in any particular way of any particular writer. I think we've all got those blind spots and I find it fascinating to look and see where they turn up in the places that I can see them. I'm sure there's tons of them that I can't see because they're my own blind spots. Yeah. Well, and speaking of the wife bringing in coffee, of course, that brings us to another really striking aspect of the book, was, which is that the Radchai Society 
doesn't think gender is all that important, and the Ratchai language makes no distinction uh, the way English does between male and female uh, people. Um, and so in the book, well, why don't you talk a little bit about that and how you chose to um, communicate that in the book? Yeah, I had wanted to, as you said, I wanted to uh, create a society that didn't, that genuinely did not care about gender. Um, but what I found was that writing in English using he and she for everybody, I couldn't escape my own associations with that. Uh, it wasn't giving the impression of a society that didn't care about gender. It was, uh, it, it was, it was inadequate to me. Uh, and so I thought about various ways to do what I was trying to do. At one point, I wrote a short story where everybody was he. I was really unhappy with it. And then I said, well, what if I just did she for everybody? You wouldn't end up with a society that truly seemed gender neutral, because, of course, she is not gender neutral. Um, you would end up with the impression of a society that was completely populated by women. But on the other hand, while it's fairly common to read books that seem like they're completely populated by men, except for the wives bringing in the coffee, um, it's not quite as common to run across that where it's all women. Uh, and also just noticing that it was all women, I found it really sort of undercut that assumption of masculine default in a way that just using he wouldn't have worked. Uh, and in a way that I personally felt using uh, one of the various proposed gender neutral pronouns wouldn't have had quite as uh, as large an impact, although it would have had some interesting effects. Uh, and actually, I think it would be cool if people would use those more often. Um, so, so that was what I ended up doing was I ended up calling everyone she and then I said to myself, well, but if the main character is talking to somebody else, uh, in a language that isn't Rajai, now I've got another problem. And so that ended up with the, the things that happened in the beginning of the novel, which is where Breck is talking to people who do speak languages that use genders, uh, and she's not used to making that assignment. Uh, and, and so she messes up sometimes, but when, but her internal monologue is, is all using the pronoun that she's used to, as though I'm translating always with she for the Rajai pronoun. Um, as it happens, actually, there are a number of, uh, real life earth languages that don't gender people. Um, Hungarian doesn't, I believe Finnish doesn't, uh, there are quite a few of them, but those are not actually, that doesn't end up with a society that actually doesn't care about gender. Um, so that I had to add another layer to it. But one of the things I think is kind of interesting is that, uh, and I found this out after I wrote the book, uh, people whose first languages are those la languages like Hungarian or, uh, Chinese, uh, I, if I understand correctly, and I may be wrong about this, in spoken Chinese, there's not a distinction, but there is a distinction in written Chinese. Uh, and I say Chinese, and there's a b bunch of different languages. This tells you how little I know about that particular group of languages. Um, but the people whose first languages don't gender people, when they're speaking, say, English, they very frequently misgender. Um, not because they don't know the difference, but because they're not used to grabbing the right one automatically, that some, which is something that we have a lot of practice at. It's part of our mental furniture. Uh, and I found that really very interesting, uh, that, that that's something that even when gender is something that's important to you, it's actually not easy to do unless you've had a lot of practice. Do you know, is there any, um, any association at all between how, whether you grew up with one of those languages and how you view gender? Um, 
I don't know of any studies, but I, I'm not sure it's particularly different. I'm not, I don't think I've ever heard that, say, in Finland or Hungary, attitude towards gender are radically different, although they may be different. This, once again, I'm stepping into an area where I know very little about, I know very little about Hungary or about Finland or about China. Um, so I couldn't tell you, but I haven't seen any, I know I've seen studies that have been disputed about, oh, were languages that gender nouns, uh, Supposedly, people have different attitude towards objects be- depending on the gender in their language, but that's been disputed as maybe not being a necessarily useful study. Uh, but I haven't heard anything about uh, people having different attitude towards gender if their language doesn't gender people. And because it, it does sort of seem to me that it might be a good thing if we've tried to move toward a language, a less gendered language, because, I mean, it just seems like when when English makes such a big distinction, it, it, it emphasizes this idea that gender is this really, really important thing that you have to keep in mind at 100% of the time, and also that there are only two genders and everyone falls into one or the other. Exactly, exactly. And you almost can't talk about somebody. I mean, you can, but it's very awkward. It's very hard to talk about somebody without calling out their gender, at least the gender that culture has assigned to them. Uh, as you point out, the idea that there are only two is not necessarily the case. Um, and I think... uh you know, when you're used to only speaking one language or a, maybe a couple of languages that tend to do the same kinds of things, uh, maybe you speak a few Indo-European languages. You, we, m- many of us learn some Spanish or some French or something. Um, it's, and, and those gender people, it's difficult to even look at the idea that maybe that assignment of gender isn't something that arises naturally out of the world, but is an artifact of the language. And I think uh, sometimes that can be a weird thought for folks who haven't thought of it that way. I think there are some things that certain things about the language makes it hard to talk about. And I think that's one of them that the way that English is gendered with its pronouns makes it hard to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I heard you say that, um, you know, not not all readers, is it uh, is it perfectly clear when they start reading this book what's going on with the the pronouns and so on? Um, what are some of the kind of more interesting interpretations that people have had uh, to it that wasn't what you had intended? Well, the one the one that I expected, one of the of the few that I expected, was the folks who would read right through and say, "Oh, well, this is a book entirely populated by women." Um, and there have been several of those. Uh, a few people have gotten all the way to the end and then gone to read a review or something and said, "Wait, what?" <laughs> I didn't I didn't catch that. Um another one that I did expect uh but I expected more of it were the folks who would read it and say, "Well, this is stupid. How could you not tell what gender somebody is? How could it not be important what gender somebody is? That's dumb." Uh and I there is some of that. I've seen some of that. And you know, readers have the reaction they're going to have once once the book is out there, you know, we read from a very personal place. We read from where we're at and what our history is and uh and who we are and I don't ever want to say that a reader's reaction to the work is not valid. Um but that was that of course was not what I was trying to convey. Um I've also and it this is a criticism that actually in some ways I've been glad to see. I've been surprised at the number of people who are really angry that I tried to convey gender neutrality by using a gendered pronoun. Um, even if it was she, which undercuts a masculine default, uh, they feel as though, uh, it would have been much better if I had used an honest to goodness gender neutral pronoun, uh, and that would have conveyed it better. Uh, 
I and uh, people who are also uh, feeling kind of angry that the male characters in the story are persistently misgendered because they're uh, continually referred to as she. Um, I understand where that's coming from. And it certainly wasn't my intention to make people feel like, uh, they were being, anybody was being maliciously misgendered. And I, in some ways, share the frustration with folks about the third person, uh, neutral pronouns. I wish they were used more, as I said, and I totally understand where that's coming from. At the same time, I made the choice I did for the reasons I made it. And while I might have sort of finesse some things a little bit differently. I think at the time I was working very strongly from uh, an assumption, maybe not an overt assumption. If you'd asked me, I wouldn't have said this, but the assumption is buried in there that in fact, gender is a binary uh, and that the implications of that do turn up in the text. And I know some people have pointed it out and they're right. It's there. And uh, had I been writing it now, I probably would have handled those moments a little bit differently, but I think I would still have gone with she because uh, I think it has a much stronger, more visceral effect because she is so much more familiar than the third person uh, neutral pronouns. Um, that said, like I said, I really wish people would use them more so that they would become more familiar. Yeah. Yes, I saw you tweeted. You say, oh, fan artists on Tumblr, I heart you. And oh, I do. <laughs> it just made me curious. I mean, because most of the characters in this book, you, you're not sure what gender they are. How how have people gone about depicting them visually, given that? Well, you know, it's really interesting. Um, the the fan art that I've seen on Tumblr, which is all wonderful, um, each one of the when they the the people will draw a character. And the character will look nothing like what I imagine the character. And they're all very different from each other. It's clear that each of these artists who've done this have a very definite vision in their mind of what the characters look like. And they're all very different from each other. And they're all very different from my internal vision of the characters. And yet at the same time, they all, they all work. They all feel, they all feel right. Um, and I just, I think that's fabulous. I just, I didn't, that was something I did not expect ever to see. And that has been a really amazing experience to me to see how these fan artists do it. And, uh, in some cases, they're drawing, uh, figures that are somewhat androgynous. Uh, in the case of Savarden, who, uh, we know, uh, uh, Breck says early on that, uh, she could refer to her as male that she would be male, but of course, a Rajai wouldn't care. Um, but she knows to use a, a masculine pronoun for Savarden. Uh, in the case of Savarden, uh, the characters, the, the figures that they draw tend to be sort of masculine, but they tend to also be kind of maybe feminized. There's one artist who loves to draw Savarden with very long, tangled, curly hair. It's really fabulous. I just, I love the fan art on Tumblr. I think hmm. it's wonderful. Is there uh, other than uh, Savardin? Is are, are there other? Is there sort of a statistical correlation between which characters readers think are male and which are female? You know, um, there isn't, and I think it's really interesting. Uh, I've run across a couple of reviews uh, where the reviewers are very clear that they they have assigned genders to the characters. Um, and they seem to believe that there's evidence for it in the text. There was one review; it might have been a podcast. I'm not sure where somebody was saying that they really liked using she, but it would have seemed like a gimmick if uh, if everybody would have turned out to be gay, for instance. But no, the characters are straight who are involved in, in sexual relationships. And I was like, really? How do they know that? 
Um, and it became clear that, uh, the reviewer was thinking very much of with uh, Lieutenant On and Lieutenant Skyat, who, of course, are romantically and sexually involved. The reviewer had assigned genders to those characters. Um, and and I thought that was really fascinating. Uh, and there was another another case where a reviewer in in summarizing the plot said of Lieutenant On and in, in the book, I say of Lieutenant On's family, her parents were cooks. That's that's all that's said about that. Uh, and this reviewer said, um, her father owned a restaurant and her mother was a cook. Hmm. And I thought that was very interesting. Uh, just, I mean, how strongly that gendering is there and those expectations are there. Um, but I, I also have seen a few people say, uh, that, that they were really fascinated with the way that that relationship in particular, um, that they began to question their assumptions they would assign as a reader one or another gender to the characters and then realize that maybe they'd assigned wrongly because of course they're both referred to as she and there's nothing in the text to say uh you know what gender they would be or what the shape of their genitals would be because you know that doesn't matter and um and i've seen a few folks say yeah it's interesting i assumed they were both women or i assumed one was male and the other was female but then i realized that if I switched it or changed that, my view of the relationship would change. So, for instance, one person was like, when when they thought of Skyet as male and on as female because of the power dynamic in that relationship. Um, but if they imagined it the other way around, of course, that changed the implied power dynamic because of our cultural assumptions. And I, that that discussion I found really fascinating. I've really enjoyed seeing the way that different readers respond to that. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. I, I did also want to talk to you about religion in, in ancillary justice. Um, if I'm remembering this right, there was this line in the book where it talks about how these people saw kind of living on a space station as the real world and descending to the planet surface was like a trip to hell and uh, going further out into space was sort of like a ascending to the heavens. Could you talk about that idea? Um, yeah, that's that's one of the... A lot of times when, uh, when we sort of make up different cultures, it's really easy. And in fact, that's a situation where I sort of took, uh, an oversimplified idea of a real world cultural idea, uh, and said, right, but if we were living in space, it would be different, right? Because your environment is, has a lot to do with what's important to you culturally. Um, there are quite a lot of, uh, religious systems that basically say here's the earth and then there's heaven above and there's the underworld below uh and i thought well yeah but if you had lived for thousands of years in space that would be different right uh and how would that be different and what would the implications of that be and so that led to that and it was really just kind of a throwaway because mm -hmm. i thought it was kind of cool to think about the idea of a space station being the natural habitat of human beings and the earth that we think of as being, you know, where you live, where everything is good as being the underworld. You know, I said, well, just sort of shift it out. What, what would that do? That would be kind of fun. And I mean, it says in the books that the Rajai consider monotheism almost um, inconceivable. Um, could you talk about why you decided to create a culture in which monotheism is so um, uh, marginalized? Well, that, yeah, partly because, uh, very frequently, uh, because we live in, at least in the U.S., uh, we live in a very, uh, Christian-dominated culture, uh, and our idea of religion is really strongly influenced by Christianity, by the basic, I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of Christianity, uh, but that sort of base 
exclusive monotheism uh, and that particular approach to it is is considered sort of the default definition of religion. And I kind of wanted to get away from that, not because I think there's necessarily anything wrong with Christianity, but because I'm a science fiction reader. I like things to be different. And I, I kind of like to sort of question that. And of course, I went looking in history, which I do very frequently. Um, and one of the things uh, about one of the narratives that's very common in our culture uh, for historical reasons, but that is massively oversimplified, is the Roman pagan relationship to Christianity uh, and to Judaism. Uh, to a lot of ancient European pagans, Christians in particular, uh, they, they consider them to be atheists because to a, a pagan, if you think about it, if you're, if you're a mon, if you're, a, excuse me, if you are, uh, multi-theist, polytheist. I'm losing my, uh, polytheist, thank you, my, I was losing my ability to speak English. <laughs> if you're a polytheist, um, the idea that one God exists and the rest don't just doesn't make sense. Um, particularly if you're the sort of polytheist who, uh, as has been the case for, uh, I think for the most, the, the majority of human religious history, uh, if it's obvious to you that you have your gods in your place, and if you go to someplace else, well, your gods are real, their gods are real, it's pretty obvious that your god of war is basically their god of war under, under a different name, right? I mean, that only makes sense. Um, so that, uh, it becomes really easy to sort of accept a lot of different models for what God is. And I think, uh, in the ancient world, the idea that there was one overarching God was, was pretty uncontroversial. Uh, but at the same time, all the other gods were considered to be sort of part of that, sort of aspects of that. Uh, and that, so the idea that our God exists and you, your gods don't exist was just really kind of weird and strange and was tantamount to saying that God did not exist because that's what they're saying. If you're saying, okay, I, God, yes, and all these other gods are part of God. And then these other people say, well, no, your God doesn't exist. Basically, they're saying there are no gods. Um, and so it's essentially a kind of atheism from that point of view. And, uh, that was, that, that was actually a real historical situation. Um, that was part of why Christianity was considered kind of, it wasn't the only reason there were some serious political problems as well. Uh, but, uh, so I wanted to kind of, I was looking into Rome, of course. So I wanted to kind of play with that. I wanted to get away from the exclusive monotheist default. I wanted to get away from, uh, preconceptions about what religion is and what faith is and how it works. Uh, and so I just kind of flipped that and I looked at historical examples of just exactly that kind of uh, interface between a culture that's polytheistic and cultures that, uh, you know, a culture that is exclusive monotheistic. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I saw you posted a message on Twitter where you said, quote, might be time for a new rant about the assumption that pre-Judeo-Christian religions were mere shallow superstitions with no spiritual significance. I was just wondering uh, what, if anything in particular, prompted that or if you wanted to say a little bit more about that. Uh, yeah, I, well, I'd, I'd wrap, okay, a thing did prompt that, um, and it was, it was in fact a discussion of the book, but I don't want to, like, point anybody to that particular discussion of the book, uh, because it's, it's a, first of all, they don't deserve it, and secondly, it was a, it's a really common attitude, um, but the idea expressed was that, um, 
obviously we have evolved past that primitive polytheism and, you know, whatever you thought of the various current religions, they were sort of philosophically superior and spiritually superior to um, ancient Roman paganism, which, you know, uh, was nothing but superstition. It was nothing but, you know, placating the gods because you were afraid and bribing them to, to give you things or whatever. And that, that, I mean, that's a really common narrative. And it's, once again, it's a common part of the narrative of the history of Christianity that, that it was real religion that evolved real, involved real spirituality and real faith and, and that, uh, that's why it's completely superseded these more pagan, uh, the more p pagan polytheistic practices. Um, and having, Actually, that narrative has sort of carried forward. I grew up Roman Catholic, uh, in a, in a majority Roman Catholic city. And it wasn't until, uh, I was about college age that I discovered some of the attitudes people who aren't Catholic have towards Roman Catholicism and that, uh, that it's pagan superstition, which has been superseded by true, re true religiousness, uh, is also part of the narrative of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, uh, superseding the horrible, superstitious, ignorant Roman Catholic Church, uh, which, I mean, I'm not Catholic anymore, I'm an atheist, but I find that really offensive and hateful. Um, so, the, you know, if you look at anybody's religious beliefs and practices that aren't yours, they seem kind of shallow and they don't make sense and they don't have any resonance. And so it's hard to believe that they really find any real spiritual meaning in them. Um, as I said, I grew up Roman Catholic, for instance, and my first ventures into, uh, say, a Baptist church seemed really weird to me. I was like, this, this can't really be religion, right? Because where is all the stuff that says God? It's not there. It, it might as well be somebody's living room or something, <laughs> right? And, but that would be doing the people who actually are sincere worshipers in that church a tremendous disservice. Um, but having that experience really taught me, you know, your own tradition feels really rich and deep and resonant to you because you're immersed in that context. And outside of that context, you don't get that. You, you can't get that feeling because you don't have the context. You don't have the background. You don't have the, the strings that are going to sympathetically vibrate to whatever that frequency is. And, um, it's really easy to look back, particularly the way that in school we're taught about Greek and Roman paganism as though they're just these stories and that these stories, quote unquote, explain why there's lightning or why there's such and such, uh, you know, why there's winter and why there's spring. And because otherwise they didn't understand it, they were just so ignorant, right? You know, I think a lot of particularly ancient polytheistic religions worked very differently from the way that Christianity works. Uh, but I do not think they were any less important to the people who lived those religions. Okay, and then I have one other question on religion I want to ask you. And this is a pretty thorny theological conundrum, so it's okay if you can't answer it. But the question is, how is God like a duck? Oh, I wish I knew. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I honestly do not know. That's why it's such a thorny question in the book, right? Yeah, so yeah, so this is a, this is a question that comes up in the, your sequel to Ancillary Justice, which is called Ancillary Sword. So let me talk about that a little bit more. Um, ancillary sword is interesting because it's, it's quite different, I think, actually, than ancillary justice. Um, ancillary justice seems more of sort of an espionage thriller and ancillary sword feels to me more like kind of a police procedural. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that? And did you, um, 
Were you going for a different kind of vibe with the sequel? I was definitely going for a different kind of vibe. I kind of feel like, I mean, on the one hand, I would love to give people more of the same who liked the book to begin with. But on the other hand, it would be kind of dull to write the same book a second time. Um, and also, uh, Breck's situation is very different. Uh, she's in the first book, uh, going, undergoing this huge tragedy and also, uh, looking for some kind of revenge or redress. Uh, in the second book, that's already been done to the extent that she could do it. And now her problems are a little bit subtler, a little bit different, and they're going to be uh, sort of superficially quieter, at least for a while. And so that really did require a different sort of a book. I mean, one thing that really struck me about Ancillary Sword is that it seems to resonate with a lot of um, contemporary events. Um, this, there seems to be a lot of sort of Occupy Wall Street and excessive force by the police kind of stuff in there. Um, were you were you sort of um, consciously reacting to to current events? It's 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 kind of a coincidence how close the publication of this was to, for instance, events in Ferguson, uh, which is not far from where I live. Actually, uh, I wasn't necessarily drawing on a particular set of events, but. I think that background of the police using excessive force with particularly with particular populations uh, is one that's kind of there in the background. Uh, I wasn't necessarily trying to make a political statement. Uh, I think with a lot of things, and occasionally I get asked this, you know, am I trying to make a political statement with the world building? And my answer is that I'm not, I didn't set out to write a novel that was a political statement, but I also believe that uh, we build stories, science fiction, far future, fabulous worlds, we build them out of our own world. And the things that we pick to put into the our built world do have political implications. They do say things about what we assume about the world. They do comment on the world that we live in. And so uh, when I pick my things, then I try and look at them to see what it is I'm saying. Uh, I don't necessarily pick things to make a statement, but I pick things because I think they are realistic. They're things that really happen in the world. And so when I want to make my world as real as possible, I'm putting those in there. So to, so there's an extent to which, yeah, the fact that those things do happen is part of why they're in the book, but they're not necessarily there because I'm trying to make a statement about it. I mean, one line from Ancillary Justice that really struck me and, and that um, really comes to the fore in Ancillary Sword is this line where somebody says, luxury always comes at someone else's expense. Um, mm -hmm. is, that some, is that something that you uh, might be uh, inclined to say yourself? Probably. Probably. At least a certain kind of luxury. Um, it's probably possible to uh, set up a life that's very comfortable for everyone and not come at anyone's expense. But I think there's a certain kind of sort of uh, over-the-top luxury that is not possible to have for everybody, that somebody's always going to get stepped on. I mean, I think a lot of science fiction fans would like to believe that technology is somehow going to free us from this sort of dynamic. Um, you know, that it used to be that taking a hot bath was something you only got to do if you were the king and now a much larger percentage of the population can take hot baths. Um, and that's sort of where I think the sort of post-scarcity kind of thing that you see in Ian M. Banks comes in. Do you, do you have any um, opinion on whether technology might free us from this sort of um, constant exploitation? Yeah, it's, 
I go back and forth because, of course, your point about hot baths, for instance, is a very good and valid one. At the same time, how many people cannot take hot baths in Detroit right now? Uh, even though that is default technology, you wouldn't think there was a building in the U.S. that did not have the capability to give its residents a hot bath. And yet, there they are. And what's the reason for it? Because they don't have the money to pay for it. Uh, and so I think whenever you set up a situation where anything like that is uh, something that is not a right, but a luxury, in because in that case, it's being treated as though it's a luxury that you have to be able to afford, even though for the vast majority of people in the country, it's considered a default thing that you can't really get along without. Um, and that in and of itself is interesting, the way it changes framing when somebody isn't giving you the money you think you need. Uh, but in science fictional terms, I don't know if it's possible. To some extent, my gut feeling is that you're always going to be in a situation like, you know, where you can never get more energy out of a, out of a system than you put in. You're always going to get less out. Mm. Ultimately, it's difficult for me to believe that that's going to be any different when it comes to uh, what you're getting out of tech. There's always going to be have to be something put in, and there's always going to be a place where there's always going to be a gap somewhere. Now, I could be wrong, and the analogy, of course, you know, hot baths aren't necessarily physics, except in terms of cooling, you know, heating them up and cooling them off and whatnot. Uh, but uh, I think it's maybe unrealistic to expect it to be possible to set up a system where everybody wins. Because basically, I mean, the rules of the universe are everybody loses eventually, and you can't cheat at the game. Maybe you can cheat temporarily, but you can't cheat permanently, and it's going to come crashing down at some point. <laughs> um, okay, then I also wanted to ask you in Ansori's story about this character, Dleek, uh, who is uh -huh. a, a human being who was raised by aliens and so has a very alien way of thinking. Uh, I just want to read something this character says. Uh, the character says, eggs are so inadequate, don't you think? I mean, they ought to be able to become anything, but instead you always get a chicken or a duck or whatever they're programmed to be. You never get anything interesting like regret or the middle of the night last week. I love that character. I just love that part. Could you just talk about um, that character and sort of trying to um, you know, create an, sort of a, this raised by aliens kind of uh, character? Yeah, she she was kind of tough, but she was also kind of fun to write. Um, because of course the idea is that the Prescott translators are raised by aliens. Um, and in fact, they uh historically not, none of this actually explicitly appears in this novel. Um, but their their origins are as they're they're cloned from the from human remains that the Prescott took off of ships that they destroyed. So originally the first few of them had like no human contact whatsoever. They were completely, you know, grown and raised by these aliens. Uh and of course trying to talk to them at first would be very difficult. Uh but they're still kind of weird. Uh, but they're very scary. And, uh, one of the things I was trying to do with her was to make someone who seemed kind of scatterbrained and silly and just kind of bizarre. And yet at the same time, this is someone who is holding the fate of millions of people in her hands because, you know, she could go back to the aliens and say, yeah, they've broken the treaty, kill them all, you know, uh, and the, the, the Presker who never are on stage for this novel are really extraordinarily dangerous and there would be no way to stop them if they decided that the treaty had been broken. So, um, so, but uh, mostly I was just trying to have fun <laughs> with her. Um, 
Okay, so in the acknowledgments, you uh, you you thank um, among the uh, people and institutions you thank is the Missouri Botanical Garden. I was just curious what role the Missouri Botanical Garden played in um, inspiring this story. Um, mostly, I knew that I was going to. I knew that I needed gardens uh, in the station, and uh, the Missouri Botanical Garden actually is one of the top botanical gardens in the world. Which I didn't realize when I was a kid. I grew up very close to them and visited them quite frequently, and I was like, "Yeah, it's just the botanical gardens." <laughs> uh, and it's not just the botanical gardens; it's really fabulous. Uh, and so uh, I spent a fair amount of time there while I was writing the novel, thinking about. Uh, how, how, uh, gardening would work on a space station. Uh, one of the cool things I got to do, uh, I took, they have a, a tour that you can pay for where you go back and look at their production greenhouses, which was really awesome. Uh, and actually there are features of the, the beautiful display gardens, the gardens at the, at, on the space station that Breck visits. Uh, there are features in that that are lifted almost entirely from the Japanese garden at the Missouri Botanical Gardens. This is in terms of the lake or, or what? The lake, yeah. There's the lake and the fish, actually. Yeah. Uh, the fish are kind of there just because I wanted them to be there. Uh, in the in the lake and the Japanese garden, there are these, uh, these carp. They've been there since I was a little kid. The Japanese garden opened up in the 70s. And I remember going all the time and they have a food dispenser and you feed them. And of course, now they're huge. They're just gigantic. Uh, and they're still there and you still can go feed them. Uh, and it's really, it's just, it's a beautiful garden. And I was like, well, I have to design my garden. And so I said, well, I like that. And I like that. And I'm just going to put it all together. Okay. So then you mentioned that the the, you're working now on the third book in this trilogy, which is called Ancillary Mercy. You want to? Is there anything you want to say about that one? Uh, hmm. Maybe not. I mean, you mentioned it involves the pre the Presker are going to come on stage. I guess. Oh, well, the the Presker the Presker are going to turn up. Uh, the aliens themselves that remains to be seen. But the Presker certainly. I mean, obviously, uh, they wouldn't have been they wouldn't have turned up in book two if they weren't already kind of aware of something going on. Um, and so they'll be turning up again in book three, definitely much more prominently. Mm, do, will this be sort of in a different vibe from the first two books or is it going to be more or less like the one of the other ones? It'll probably have a little more action than the last one. Uh, in some ways it'll be sort of similar because of course, uh, Breck is still a single bodied person. Um, and so her point of view is going to be much more similar to that of Ancillary Sword than Ancillary Justice, where we had her when she was still a ship. Um, but I think the book will have a kind of a different feel to it. All right, cool. So, um, yes, we're pretty much out of time. So I think we're going to have to wrap things up there. But so we've been speaking with Anne Leckie, and her new book is called Ancillary Sword. So, Anne, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And that was our interview. So thanks again to Anne Alecki for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to all of our crowdfunders, including our newest crowdfunder, Joe Monty, crowdfunder number 90. Joe worked for years as a literary agent with clients such as our producer, John Joseph Adams, and he now runs the Saga Fantasy and Science Fiction imprint at Simon & Schuster. Joe also appeared as a guest geek back in episode 104, so definitely check that out to learn more about literary agents and launching your own SF imprint. This episode was also made possible thanks to support from listeners such as Jonathan Pottle, Kurt Donaldson, R. Chris Four, Scott Osterling, and John Marshall. 
So thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. To learn more, visit us at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. If you enjoyed today's show, please give us five stars on iTunes or like us on Facebook. You can also follow us on Twitter at Geeks Galaxy. And if you live in the New York area, you should come out and see Genevieve Valentine, who appeared in episodes 40 and 69, at the KGB Bar on Wednesday, October 15th. For more information, visit kgbfantasticfiction.org. And for more New York events, follow Geeks Guide NYC on Twitter. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening. 